Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we talk about the latest in zero-knowledge research and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. In this week's episode, guest host Tarun and I chat with Alex Svanovic, CEO and co-founder of the company Nansen. We cover crypto analytics, DeFi analytics, as well as discuss the push and pull between a need for privacy and the need for blockchain transparency and data. Now, before we start in, I want to say thank you to this week's sponsor, Alio. Alio is the first platform for fully private applications. They use blockchain and zero-knowledge cryptography to deliver a web experience that is both personal and private. With Alio, developers can write private applications without a background in blockchains or any expertise in cryptography. The company consists of a world-class team of cryptographers, engineers, and designers. And they've recently released the Developer Preview 1, an early peek at what the future of the web could look like. The release introduces a new programming language called Leo, as well as a new community-driven package manager for Leo, and a new development environment, or IDE, called Alio Studio. We recently had Howard Wu, the co-founder of Alio, on the show for an interview. If you haven't yet checked it out and want to find out more, I highly recommend giving it a listen. I'll provide a link in the show notes, as well as a link to the developer preview, so that you can learn more about Alio and start contributing today. So thank you again, Alio. Now here is our interview with Alex from Nansen. So this week, I'm happy to invite Tarun back to the show as a guest host. Hi, Tarun. Hey, how are you? Good. Nice to see you back here. You know, it's always good to be on on the podcast. (laughs) In our conversation today, we're going to be touching on crypto analytics, but we're specifically going to be looking at DeFi analytics. And we have a really good guest to do that with. We have with us Alex Svanovic, who is the CEO and co-founder of Nansen. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Nice to be here. Before we start in on you, because obviously we want to learn a little bit about your background, the name Nansen, what is that name? What does that mean? That's a really good question, actually. We took it from an explorer who's called uh, Fritjof Nansen. He's a Norwegian explorer, polar explorer, and he sort of embodies the values that we have in the company of curiosity and courage. And he had many famous expeditions. He led a an expedition called Fram, which made it uh, the furthest north that anyone has ad- ever been. Uh, cool. So he did a lot of other interesting things, and he actually helped develop the theory of the neuron. Oh, wow. So, so he was also a scientist. So, so he's the inspiration for the name. It's also pretty easy to pronounce in all <laughs> languages, which is good. So what got you interested in this particular space? Tell us a little bit about the path that led you to founding Nansen. Yeah, so my own personal background is in machine learning and and data science. I've worked about 10 years in startups, uh, larger corporations, and I also did a few years in management consulting. And then in 2017 is when I transitioned into working full-time in crypto. So I discovered that there was an abundance of data in crypto and an openness around data. But I found that the space was still quite immature Mm -hmm. when it came to analytics products. Um, And so... For me personally, that that meant I could um, create some value in the space. Was that the first project you worked on? Like, did you immediately start in an- the analytics side of things, or? Yes, I mean, 
I think, you know, like a lot of others, I started first looking at, you know, crypto investments. You know, this was right before the ICO boom and bust. And so I was actually looking quite a bit at ICOs and like what could drive success rates and multiples uh, in terms of valuations and so on. So I did a small project around ICOs with a couple of other people. But very early, I started looking at on-chain data, which I found to be the most interesting aspect of crypto. Cool. You know, one thing I think that's kind of interesting is a lot of the episodes on this podcast focus on sort of future-facing changes to blockchains, like new blockchains, blockchains that have new privacy tools or are more scalable. But, you know, you've really focused on kind of retrospective analysis of of, of blockchains and, and doing things in, in that world. How long have people been really doing analytics within crypto and kind of but yeah, what's actually the history? Because I, I feel like, you know, people have heard of chain analysis or they've heard of kind of some of these investigations, but I don't think people actually totally know how this kind of space got started. So definitely my focus has been on the Ethereum ecosystem. And so there's obviously a history before Ethereum when it comes to on-chain data. And you mentioned chain analysis, which has been, I think you could, you could say, a controversial player in, in the crypto space. They've focused a lot of having customers outside of the crypto space, right? Like law enforcement, uh, regulatory bodies, government agencies, and so on. I think with Ethereum, uh, there's been maybe a couple of other analytics companies that have fo- focused more on the actual crypto entities as the customer base. And so that's definitely the case with Nansen. So I would say that from you know the, the ICO boom and bust, there were a lot of analytics companies that kind of arose in that era. Mm. And then they, many of them transitioned into more like regulatory uh, focus. So you might have been looking at kind of tokens and so on in 2017. But then as the interest for these tokens kind of died uh, in 2018 and 19, many of them pivoted towards more B2B analytics and, and even you know, regulatory uh, applications like compliance. So I think there are some, you know, some examples of companies doing that. Uh, and I think, you know, if you look at the whole analytics space, there's probably been a bias towards Bitcoin, probably partially because of that, because, you know, most of the customers buying analytics and data were actually, you know, on the B2B side, uh, wow. focusing on, on Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin analytics, in the case of Bitcoin, I guess all that you'd be analyzing is just like, I mean, it's purely account names and transaction information, I suppose. Whereas with Ethereum, because there's like dApps working on top of it, like when you do analytics on that, are most of those analytics still just on like value transactions or is it just on like who the accounts belong to? Or do you see already like a more sophisticated analytics idea happening there? Yeah, that's a great question. In our case, and actually with all of on-chain analytics that you do with Ethereum, you can look at much more than just value transfer. You can look at interactions with smart contracts. Mm-hmm. You can look at, for example, ownership uh, of you know, multi-sigs, membership uh, in different DAOs, you know, participation rates and governance. You know, it's a very rich ecosystem in that sense. And the cool thing about Ethereum is that it's actually not that hard to do on-chain analytics. For example, you have events that get emitted from smart contracts and these you can actually pull out from just reading out the logs mm. um, from, from the blockchain. So those are some things we look at. 
the, the unique thing about Nansen in particular is that we also have this off-chain contextual layer on top of the product. So we don't only have kind of vanilla on-chain data. We also enrich the on-chain uh, data with contextual information about, for example, which exchanges are involved oh, wow. in the transactions, which DeFi protocols are there. So if you wanted to learn, you know, how does money flow around the different real-world entities, Nansen is probably the best place to go to find out. Before we dive more into Nansen itself, I'm curious to hear, like, what are the other projects? I'm wondering if there's projects that I may have heard of that are doing that on Ethereum, looking deeper than just transaction data, just to give some kind of maybe some reference points to people. Yeah, absolutely. So some other companies in the space are Bloxy, for example, which I think focus mostly on API access. They also have a, a great website with lots of different, you know, insights that you can pull out of there. Uh, you also have Glassnode, which is another one, Dune Analytics, which a lot of people use to write SQL queries on. Elementus is another one, which is a bit more on the B2B side. So there's, there's quite a few different analytics companies in the space. And you know, many of them have an on-chain focus, and some also you know, focus more on the off-chain market data, which would be you know, the obvious like CoinMarketCap, CoinGecko, and so mm. on which are more on the, on the you know, market side of things and off-chain, centralized exchanges, et cetera. So I think you know, one interesting role that we've seen is that kind of blockchain analytics has, has historically, as you've pointed out, in, in Bitcoin really been focused on analyzing crime and sort of trying to I- identify individual users at the cost of reducing fungibility and making privacy more difficult. But... I think in DeFi, there's because of kind of this richer data that you've you've kind of intimated, there's a bigger role for analytics, especially in terms of understanding smart contract state and how certain external entities are interacting with the blockchain. So, where do you kind of see the role of of analytics within within DeFi and, and how that's going to grow? I think there's at a high level uh, when when we think about you know the the user segments of Namsen, for example, which I think sort of maps out quite nicely to the entire crypto ecosystem. It's really two main purposes. Either you use analytics as an advantage when you do investing in trading, which is a you know, big use case for it uh, on its own. Crypto is interesting because it has very low transaction costs as a market, but it's also very inefficient still, which means that information is incredibly valuable. Mm. Uh, if you spot you know, uh, an inefficiency, in many cases, you can profit from it within seconds. So that, that's definitely one use case. The other use case is for the kind of crypto teams and DeFi uh, project teams themselves to make their products better. You know, this could be trying to better understand the different wallets that are in, interacting with their smart contracts, what other contracts are, are those using, even if you don't know, you know their identity, you don't need to know who they are. But the fact that you have a persistent record of that account can help you into better understanding you know, what other protocols they use and so on and so forth. So just where you might see you know, analytics on web users in a web 2.0 world, you can see analytics on smart contract usage on wallets, even if you don't know who they are. But you have a persistent record over time that you know, maps to some kind of entity in, in the real world. So I think those are the main use cases for investing in trading and really to make products better in the space. And you know, from, from my own experience, speaking with customers at Nansen, but also just seeing usage of other 
products that we that we've talked about. I think those are the main use cases that you know people use analytics products for. You could also say there's like an entertainment value. So some people just like you know lurking and like you know checking out different wallets or different projects and seeing you know what's actually happening. But very often it borders onto the kind of investing use case for you know retail investors yeah. and so on. I think you've also been cited by journalists as sometimes like if you're doing a report or something like that, they maybe would use this. But. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That's actually a third use case. Yeah, that's <laughs> normally we, we talk about three different customer segments. And that's, that's actually the third one, which is still pretty small, to be honest, in terms of numbers. Yeah. But it is really important, like strategically. And, and when you think about the impact that some of these researchers can have, definitely. Mm. What's the big difference here, you know? When you're doing DeFi, you're doing analytics on decentralized financial instruments or you know contracts, what have you. Is there any version of this in traditional finance that you are looking at and kind of trying to replicate, or is it completely crypto native? Are you actually like, and and this is also to you, Tarun, since you come from that world. But like, are there a lot of analytics tools like this in traditional finance? I'd actually love to hear Tarun's take on this first before I go, actually. Yeah, I mean, I think the data transparency doesn't exist as much. So, like, most of your tools that you're using are, like, trying to backwards infer what, you know, people's behavior or, like, their identity and based on, you know, how often they send certain sized orders or something to an exchange, you're, you're like, oh, okay, this is the whale who always rounds all of their order wow. sizes to 27 or multiples of 27 or something, right? Versus, uh, I think, certainly in Ethereum, given that it's only pseudonymous and people tend to not re you know, use new addresses very often, you tend to be able to do a lot more rich analytics. And I think what we've seen in, in the crypto world is that's changed the market behavior quite a bit when everyone is able to observe you. I think there was a, re a controversy over last week <laughs> where a large exchange owner who shall not be named was sh publicly shorting, or like a trading firm associated with him, uh, was publicly shorting a coin, and they basically got short via a DeFi protocol, and they had an angry mob go after them on Twitter. Which in normal finance, you you know, the lender would have to leak your name to the press, which would then, you know what I mean? It's not like a... At least in my, my view, this is like a little richer because the market structure is impacted by the analytics. Versus the in, in normal finance, it's the analytics exists in spite of the market structure. You're saying that behavior is probably altered because you are public. Not just the behavior of the reaction, but like the behavior of the actor in the first place. If they have the foresight to realize that like they will be seen, maybe they yeah, act slightly and I think, differently. You know, I think Alex probably knows way more examples than me of, of people using their product to, to kind yeah. of build a narrative like that. You know, we, we have customers who've spotted, you know, other entities accumulating a certain asset and then basically have accelerated their own purchasing of, of said asset, you know, which in, in their own words, saved them execution costs of maybe $250,000, right? So, yeah. so just as an example, but I, I don't think we've seen that much of the kind of bluffing and so on that I think we will see. It's not clear that, you know, the entity that Tarun mentioned, it's not clear to what extent they would actually, you know, let's say, sell the full amount of tokens that are being sent to some centralized exchange. And so you could imagine scenarios where an entity would do that in order to spoof, almost do an on-chain spoof, right? 
where basically the market might get frightened and start selling off and they get a better price of, of buying mm. it up somewhere else. So it becomes kind of this poker game almost of misleading people <laughs> on chain, which, which is interesting. And it's like its own kind of new dimension of game theory. That's interesting. But, but mostly I, I think people love the, they have a fascination with, with on-chain, I think, because it feels very futuristic and mysterious in a way that you can just see these like massive transactions. And they very often go viral, right? Like if you see someone make a, a one Bitcoin transfer of like, you know, billions of dollars or whatever it is, they tend to go viral. So I think there's kind of like an innate kind of curiosity or fascination among people as well, looking mm-hmm. at on-chain data. And, and all these things come together in this, you know, wacky thing called crypto, which is like part entertainment, part finance. That's so funny. It's true. It's like you hear sometimes about the, these big movements and then there's all these the speculation and narratives and storytelling around like what they think that might be. And sometimes you'll have sort of an expert way in and just be like, oh, it's just this. Don't worry about it. But then like exactly. there's obviously the conspiracy theorists who are like, oh, but who knows? <laughs> Yeah. But what you, from your position, like what you see, obviously you've built like an analytics tool, but do you also, I'm, I'm assuming you're paying attention to this space and the dashboards as well. Like what, what are you looking at? What would you look at? What do you think is like the most interesting thing for people to pay attention to in this? Yeah. So I'm definitely the biggest user of Namsen in terms of hours. Like I'm, okay. I dog food the product literally every day. So again, it comes back to those use cases, right? For the 3D segments, like if you're an analyst, if you're a product manager, for example, or an engineer, uh, or an investor. And so in my own use case, it's mostly on the investor or, or perhaps trader side. And that's also about you know 70% of our customers. So if you're, for example, going to acquire a token or like change your position in a token, either invest more into a token or sell off some, typically you might want to look at what are some entities that like have been accumulating this token lately, like the last 24 hours, uh, the last seven days or 30 days, have they changed their positions? That's one thing that people very often look at. And so sometimes actually the accumulation on its own will be a buy signal for some people, depending on their strategy, because it indicates that they know something that the rest of the market does not know. Mm. So that's, that's kind of one, one use case. So th- the way I think about it conceptually is really... Are you doing due diligence on a specific asset or are you doing discovery of new assets? And so in due diligence, you know, that would be an example of what I just said. You're looking at a specific asset, but in discovery, you could look at, you know, what are some of the smartest wallets, you know, because you can actually think of them as entities, even if you don't know who they are. What are some of these smartest wallets doing on chain? Are they mm. yield farming from a specific project? Are they accumulating a token and so on? So that's, that's another case where with this yield farming craze we've had, uh, many people have been looking at who are actually the yield farmers in specific contracts. And then they mm. maybe, you know, maybe mistakenly, but sometimes they use that as a proxy for risk. And they say, oh, you know, this big fund is yield farming. This, this, they're actually the biggest farmer of this contract. I will assume that they have done the risk due diligence and I will just ape in after them, which is, yeah. you know, Sometimes it might work as a heuristic, but it's definitely not 100% safe. And we heard about that in the Sushi Swap Saga episode that we did a few weeks ago, where we, we exactly. heard about people kind of like Tarun. I think you had an example of people pinging you. This is this is the saying, same. This this, this is the is same entity, because... by the way, who, who we were talking <laughs> we, about. We should find a code name. 
Yeah, it, it, find a code everything name. boils down to, to SBS lately. And so I think the analytics have been quite interesting in that the once people started realizing, you know, I think in the normal markets, if like a whale influences the market and people like want to kind of like dox the whale because they like affected microstructure, they'll do things like call Bloomberg and tell Bloomberg like, hey, like, there's this market manipulator or like, you know, call the SEC or, or you know, kind of make some noise that way. But the cy- the life cycle is so much faster in crypto, right? Like, I feel like we went from like three weeks ago with SushiSwap to like now a- a- SBF is a villain. He went from like <laughs> the hero that saved SushiSwap to like he's the villain oh and God. everyone is looking at all of Alameda's on-chain transactions. I mean, I think it, it's a really interesting case as well where... Uh, you, you start thinking about how crypto is kind of a new paradigm, especially when it comes to privacy, you know, reputation, identity, and so on. Because I think some entities will just choose to embrace the transparency of blockchain. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to increase privacy for individuals and even, you know, funds in many cases. But I think also, obviously, Al- Alameda, I guess we could just say, uh, you also said SBS before, so it's not, it's pretty clear. Yeah, no, we've already, we've already, we, I, I was just saying, as yeah. <laughs> and, and so, and so it's pretty clear that like, they have a much larger brand now, like partially because of all this stuff going on on chain. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, traditionally, you know, all, all PR is good PR. So I think there's kind of a discussion to be had on that aspect as well, where you might actually use the blockchain as like an like almost like a social medium, you know, it's kind of wow. more like Twitter than, than a banking system, which is kind of strange. But in many ways, that's, that's, that's how it is. You just mentioned something, you just mentioned this concept of privacy on like in these analytics systems. And obviously, analytics is the observation of kind of data and the connecting of points, right? It's like linking mm. things to one another. Privacy, this was a, a topic that we definitely want to cover on this podcast. How do you approach privacy, because we talked about these previous analytics companies. In their case, it was often about identifying users and reporting them potentially to an external party. Or even the example you just gave, like in DeFi, are you still trying to identify the users or not? It's a great question. So first of all, there are some regulations here, right? So even disregarding what we personally believe about something, there are regulations you have to follow, like GDPR, for example, in Europe. So uh, we don't track data on individuals, for example. So we don't okay. add labels for individuals, with the exception of people who have kind of where they have placed information in the public domain already. For example, you know, my name is so and so, and I'm a I'm a multi-sig signer of Project ABC. Yeah, you know, that that would be a scenario where we're comfortable placing the label. And if that entity comes to us and says, "Hey, you should remove that," we will do it. Got it. Also, I guess if someone tweeted it, if they were like, this is my exactly. address, send exactly. me, okay, then you kind of make that association. Yeah, yeah. You know, again, assuming that, you know, that tweet is still up, so it's in the public domain and so on. But really, what we've found is like, people aren't really interested in individuals as much. I mean, they're, they're interested in notable individuals, of course, but then there's typically a corporate entity associated with it. Mm. And so we, when it comes to real world entities, we focus on you know, projects, exchanges, funds in some cases, mining pools, you know, these, these larger entities that are not tied to individuals. That's mostly what people care about. And so it's been not that difficult for us in that sense to you know, find a limit between individuals and 
you know, all these different corporate entities. What you're saying here, are you saying that like on the individual level, you, at least Nansen, doesn't have a focus on linking the individual account holder to an in, like a person, but yeah. you have identified, I guess, the corporate accounts. Yeah, in, in many cases we have. I should also point out just, you know, for full transparency that when it comes to individuals, many people dox themselves on chain, like literally through ENS names, right? Yeah. And, you know, some people do that willingly and consciously. Other people probably aren't as aware of this. And I think, sadly, a lot of people tend to think that if you can't see something on Etherscan, then you can't see it on the blockchain, which is a really bad heuristic. Um, mm. Because you obviously have the whole transactional history of, of the blockchain available for anyone. So if someone has the time, they can sit down, parse out all the on-chain transactions and identify exactly where all these ENS names are associated, like which wallets, which ones have owned them in the past and so on. And so we do show ENS names in our platform. And sometimes yeah. that can be quite revealing. Of course, there's no guarantee that if someone buys, you know, alexvanovic.eth, that's actually me, but True. that's what it says on chain. So we don't censor ENS names as such. Like we do, we do display them in, in the platform, but really the focus for us is not on individuals and we don't add any labels. I think it, it is also important to distinguish between the collection of data and the display of data. Mm -hmm. So in the case of ENS, that's not really a collection of data. We're just displaying the data that's already on chain. If we were collecting data on individuals, like, hey, you know, we found this information, someone told this person owns this wallet, you know, and if we put that in the platform, that's a very different use case um, from a privacy perspective and, mm -hmm. and a data perspective. It's funny, like when you talk about kind of an analytics platform, I often, for some reason, for me, like, to be honest, I haven't used, I haven't used one. I haven't used a, anything past a block explorer. And I think of a block explorer as being sort of like the first level of analytics. But I yep. mean, all it is, is really just like, here's some very basic data pulled from the blockchain displayed for you. This is what this, you know, user's account number is called. Here's the amount in it. Here's the transactions. But actually, what you just said there, you, you, you hinted at something like, what isn't displayed in the Block Explorer? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's lots of stuff that's not displayed, right? So first of all, if you think about a product like Etherscan, which is great, and I use it every day, I love it. I think it has different goals than most analytics products. In, in particular, Namsen has very different goals. So first of all, Etherscan seems to me to try to be more of like a, a registry or, or a reference, and it intends to be less opinionated. And that means it doesn't sort of favor the display of certain things over other things. Mm -hmm. And if you go to a specific address and you look just visually, you'll see all the transactions listed chronologically, right? There's no kind of visual emphasis on any particular transactions. And so Nansen is a bit different because we give ourselves kind of the liberty to be opinionated about how we display data. And so we will typically make more emphasis on like large transfers, large transactions, because we imagine mm. that investors and sometimes, you know, product teams are actually more interested in that. So that, that's one thing that is kind of, you know, there's a difference between the more kind of aggregated analytics and opinionated analytics, if you can call it that, versus the just blockchain explorers. And so we don't really have the goal of displaying everything that happens on chain in that sense. Um, with something like Etherscan, there's a lot of stuff you don't see. The ENS names, you have to kind of go to a separate section and look that up 
Okay. Um, you don't necessarily see past ENS names. And I'm not sure why they kind of haven't focused that much on having ENS names in the main view. It could be mm. because they are, I don't know, uh, thinking about the privacy concerns. But in my personal opinion, it's better to make people aware that these ENS names are actually there under are the attached. surface. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's funny because I've seen after Nansen started getting popular, I think a lot of people have actually become more privacy aware, which is a, which is a good thing, in my opinion, because we are not out there to, you know, to track down individuals who, you know, hold some certain amount of crypto in their wallets. That's not really the focus. And people, yeah. generally speaking, don't really care about that. In your tool, do you also show all of the links, like every account and the links that that account would have to other accounts? Like if, you know, yep. yeah, we so do. you do, you do so, that. So we do have, for example, a dashboard that's called the wallet profiler. And so you input an address and you see all the neighboring wallets that this one has transacted with in order to help you understand the context of what this wallet is. And it's, it can often be quite helpful to understand, you know, what are the, the different DeFi protocols, for example, that have interacted directly with the smart contract. Uh, what are the main entities in terms of exchanges or even funds or market makers like we talked about? Mm. And so, yeah, you, you do see that definitely. That's that's one of the more popular dashboards in our platform. I like that idea, though, that like by looking at and I actually I would I would say that in the Web2 world with my old startup, when I learned about you know, online analytics or Google analytics, like obviously like my realization of what was being tracked, my eyes were open to that. All of a sudden I was like, wow, like I have to think about my own behavior. And, yes. you know, I, I all of a sudden understood how my privacy would also be impacted by this. I haven't yet looked at anything on the crypto side. So I think it sounds like it's a good time to do it. And maybe this is a good recommendation to people because to better understand what it actually is, you'd have to actually see that displayed in a way, like what you've done, what your yeah. actual history looks like for real. Yeah. So one idea we've played around with, which I think we might do, is to just give people a simple tool where they can actually just look up their own address and see like, hey, here's what you can actually see about this address. And of course, you know, our product is a paid product, so we can't just let them do that for any address. Mm -hmm. But you could imagine that they just sign a message proving that they actually own that wallet. And because of that, they are allowed to see the transactions on their own wallet, which would be kind of a privacy tool that might help people get more aware of what's actually, you know, possible to see. Totally. That would be actually amazing to have. Yeah. Like a, a self-reporting privacy tool for, I mean, DeFi general blockchain. Yep. Like that would be so useful. 100%. I, yeah, this is high, high up on our list. Is there anything like that? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I don't know if Tarun has seen anything. I, I'm not aware of anything. <laughs> so, Nope. Yeah, I haven't seen anything quite yet. Although I feel like that is a direction that you know, we're inevitably headed towards. Especially, I think, as the projects themselves want better analytics on, on their users. I feel like that's going to be a market force that kind of pushes this. Yep. So, you know, going a bit back to this discussion about privacy, identity, and so on. We do already have some examples of people that have like an on-chain reputation. So there are ENS names that aren't, they aren't widely known who they are in the real world. The most famous one, or the one that I follow the most is called newbie.eth. And, okay. and this entity, you know, <laughs> did, did some incredible trades and some activity in like early yield farms. And I know for a fact that a lot of, a lot of people follow this account 
But the funny thing is, like, no one. I'm guilty. Okay, yeah, you're following. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> following this person. <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure some people know, uh, like, you know, who this person is. But I don't know. But I still follow them, right? Because so, so in fact, their address is is actually an asset in itself. You know, it's it's valuable. If a token project has newbie.eth on their top twenty list as one of the holders, like I'm going to be looking at that project. It's just wow. that's just kind of how it, how it is. So I think it's almost like a third phase. You know, internet in the early days, everyone was using like avatars, nicknames. We didn't really know who people were. Web 2.0. You had kind of the Facebook um, era where you know everyone had their full name on the internet and everyone knew who you were and you logged in with your Facebook and, and everything. Web3 might be kind of a return to the roots in that sense uh, where you can have a pseudonymous presence online and people don't know who you are, but you can still build up kind of like an identity asset on its own. For better or worse, as we've <laughs> yeah. seen recently. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you can build a quick reputation in a month or two and then do a massive uh, rug pull. <laughs> indeed. So Yes, indeed. Right, but now everyone can watch you and will hold it against you in the future. I think there's actually this interesting thing of like on-chain analytics forces everything to be an iterated game. You can't just kind of like win a one-shot game where you're like, oh, I'm just going to fuck over everyone and like take yeah. all the rewards. Well, if if there's some sense of on-chain identity and you don't do a very good job of hiding it, which is expensive in some ways, right? Mm -hmm. You actually might not be able to win in whatever crypto game you're playing. You you know, you you everyone knows and will start suddenly being able to turn against you. And so That's interesting. I'm just thinking about that example of like, I don't know, like some cartoon character type avatar, Twitter personality, but like there are addresses probably linked to like anyone who's in crypto and on Twitter, they may have at some point like shared that link. And then even if they try to kind of move away from that avatar, they try to create a new identity, let's say, because all of it's sort of cartoony and fake anyway, it's not directly linked to them. They still have to use the same crypto accounts. They still have to use, like there could still be some sort of link between them there. Yeah. in in a, you know, if you don't have good OPSEC, I guess, I mean, yeah. You, you could just create a new address and fund it from a centralized exchange, and then it's quite hard to track it, to be honest. From the outside, yeah. the exchange knows. The, exactly, the, exactly. Yeah. So it's it's kind of hard to do it fully trustlessly. I mean, you, you do have like Tornado Cash and so on, and so, some promising early projects. In practice, probably easiest now is just to you know, fund an address from, from Coinbase or something like that, mm. if, if you just want to be pragmatic. Uh, and that's what a lot of people do. In a future where there are more private blockchains, how do you view the role of analytics and how do you view analytics evolving if, say, like we have a world where privacy focused blockchains take over or like even like layer twos are private, so mm -hmm. you only get some some data on the main chain? How do you view the evolution of, of privacy and analytics? Because I feel like just like in the normal markets, there's this cat and mouse game yep. of like Everyone knew they were being watched. They moved to something they thought was more private. Then they just found out that a new entity fucked them instead of the old entity. And, you know, yep. but I feel like in crypto, we actually have a chance for like separating church and state in terms of privacy and transactability. So, you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, how, I'd love to hear what, what you think about kind of how analytics interacts with that. I guess the first thing I think about, because, you know, we, we, we run a business around analytics. The first thing I think about is like if you see either certain privacy chains or privacy technologies or layer two, like how will this impact our ability to do analytics? 
and just from from the perspective of our team, three different scenarios. Either it's impossible, like either some technology that just doesn't you know make it possible to do certain types of analytics, which seems kind of I don't exactly see how that would play out uh, in practice because you know there are going to be some kind of traces of things happening, but it might not be as kind of parsable as it is today. So that's one outcome, like it's just impossible. And then it's going to be impossible for everybody, not just for us, right? And then at the other extreme, it's going to be relatively easy to still do analytics, which, you know, let's say you have some new chain that gets very popular and it's similar to Ethereum 1.0 today. So it's still going to be quite easy for us to do it. And in that case, you know, we're going to be able to do it because we've done it with, with Ethereum 1.0. And then there's kind of this step in the middle where it's going to be just a lot harder and in that scenario, I think analytics companies are going to become even more important because it's harder to do it on your own. And so you're going to have to rely on analytics companies. Mm-hmm. So that's almost like the, the best case scenario in a way. If, it gets, if it's not impossible, it's just really hard. I think that's a scenario where analytics companies will actually thrive, ironically, perhaps, because a mm-hmm. lot of people are kind of, you know, they ask us like, What's, what are you going to do in that scenario? But that's actually the best scenario for, I think, strategically for analytics companies. With L2, so taking a step back from like our business, which is obviously top of mind for me, (laughs) I think with L2, you might see more fragmentation, right? So that means you might have more niche players focusing on specific L2 technologies or basically, you know, second layers. And so you might see that there's a standard that evolves for like gaming, for example, and then you'll have gaming analytics companies or blockchain gaming analytics companies pop up. That could be one uh, scenario. And with other chains, I think that's, you know, that's a tricky one. If you just have like other chains than Ethereum get to the same level of ecosystem activity, uh, there, there's not much evidence that we have any, I think, so far. But you know, if that happens, we'll, we'll probably see either you know, some of these companies move over and actually support other chains. In our case, our technology doesn't really rely on Ethereum specifically. Like we have an abstraction layer above that that we can use for other chains as well in most cases. But you might see then a new wave of, you know, if it's near protocol Mm -hmm. analytics or, you know, if it's Polkadot analytics or whatever it is. And yeah, and in the case of privacy chains, personally, I don't, you know, we haven't seen that much evidence that, you know, people are using privacy features, even the ones that exist today, you know. So, So far. Yeah, yeah, so I hear far. You. So the, I guess the, the the verdict is still out on that if it's going to really take off, and also you know the regulatory aspects might become a bit trickier. Yeah, yeah. So th- there's different things there. Just one last thing I, I would add on it is that I think it goes back to the, this transparency versus privacy dichotomy, and some entities will obviously want to prefer transparency. Like if if you're a CFI protocol, like a lending protocol, I think it's actually a competitive advantage if you can show transparency, like that you have certain funds. Like I, I'm not sure I would deposit funds into, say, like Nexo or Celsius or BlockFi if like their whole stack was kind of privacy first oriented, where you don't really know what's happening with the funds. I think I'd be more comfortable depositing funds into a CFI protocol if there is a degree of transparency. That, that's just me personally. And I, I think some people might feel the same way. But, you know, there, there is that kind of dilemma between mm. um, transparency and privacy. But actually, a solution to what you just described, I mean, there are zero-knowledge proof systems and concepts already 
in in place, which suggests this idea of selective disclosure where you would be able to prove, you know, for sure that the funds are there without revealing how much is there exactly or without any sort of information leakage. That's where, like, I mean, I love this idea of, like, it doesn't have to be privacy or transparency, but you could actually somehow find a way to have both. Yeah, that's really cool. But, but like, in practice, just kind of riffing off that, in practice, like, how would a platform like Nexo do that without having a third party that almost acts as, like, the trusted party that I can actually, in an easy way, show to other people that they actually hold the funds? But like, that's where, like, if it's, especially if it's numbers, you could actually yeah. use a ZKP to prove that it reaches a certain threshold. And all you would get is the answer would be, I mean, I'm simplifying like crazy sure, here, sure, but sure. <laughs> the output would be something like, does this CFI entity actually have it? The output would be true. Right. And yeah, that's so, like a very simple way that I've understood this idea of selective yeah. disclosure using ZKPs. And you, it works best when there's a value, like a numerical value or something very mathematical. Mm. It's mm. less easy when it's something like you would need some third party checking your ID, like say it was like your age. It's like you still at this stage in, in time would need some entity to say, yes, that is their age, like, the, right. I don't know, the DMV or something. And then you could put that on chain and then you could prove it using ZKPs. But it's, you're still, you have this sort of arbitrage, this um, real world th third party entity step that mm. you describe. But if it's numbers, you don't need that so much. But I don't That's know cool. exactly how they would <laughs> implement this. But I yeah. do hope to actually see that combination someday. Yeah, 100%. I mean, that sounds really, really interesting. There still have not been good designs for financial exchange mechanisms that use zero-knowledge proofs. For instance, like something Uniswap-like is fraught with a bunch of difficulties because you have to have some things that our global public state that everyone agrees on and some things that are private state, like, hey, I made a trade, but somehow not leak information in terms of like a, the timing of when you send orders and, and things mm -hmm. like that. So I think there's still a huge design space that people who work on ZKPs, I think, have basically more focused on, you know, simple circuits and things like that. But I think for a lot of these DeFi applications, we're we don't have any of the economic mechanisms built that are compatible with privacy to some extent. So, Yeah. I think this, I mean, this is a topic, I know Tarun, you and I have talked about this, but this is a topic we want to cover eventually, which is that of privacy and DeFi, like whether they work yeah. together. I think when it comes to the question of analytics, because we'll bring that, we'll bring it back then to analytics, like, it's almost like, I, th I think you're kind of correct in saying that like, right now, there the privacy chains maybe aren't useful enough or these pri even privacy layer twos, they're not seeing the volume that you would necessarily like need dedicated analytics to deal with yet, but they could. And yeah, I, I, I kind of want to, I want to hear like a, even a little bit more about what you were thinking with the, like how would an L2 analytics, like how would it, how would you even track that right now? This is actually kind of taking it outside of privacy, but going back to the sharding or heterogeneous shards or these other kind of, you know, interconnected, interoperable systems or layer twos, how would you even approach something like that? I think at least one way you might do it is to simply rely on a certain project's own APIs. Let's say you're, you've got a gaming-oriented L2. Uh, they might actually be somehow tracking transactions that take place on, because, you know, a layer two doesn't necessarily have to be privacy-oriented as such. Mm -hmm. And so we can still parse out, you know, the data from either their APIs that they provide to us, or in some cases, you could read it directly off uh, chain if, if you're a validator or something like that on 
on that layer two network. Mm. In the case of zero knowledge and so on, I'm definitely not an expert. So we should get Evgeny or something back <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on this podcast and dive into that. I think, you know, one year from now, we, we might have some, you know, more real world experience with some of these L2 solutions and so on. That's true. I mean, it is so, I know I'm sort of throwing this question to you, like you're supposed to have an answer right now, but like, <laughs> seriously, like I used an L2, I think for the first time a few weeks ago with uh, ZK Sync. I don't know if I'd used right. it before. So I, with with the Gitcoin kind of grants and stuff like that, where I actually like looked at a block explorer on an L2 and like proactively like interacted with it. So um, that's really cool. It's pretty fresh, it's really, you know? Yeah, it's really ble bleeding. <laughs> and I'm, maybe I'm yeah. late to the party, but like still, I think I'm more probably like a, I always call myself a, a late early adopter. So if, I, <laughs> if I'm there, we're about to not be early adoption time. <laughs> but I just tap into the end. I don't think you're you're quite late. I don't even think the UX on layer twos is solidified. Um, yeah, I agree. It seems it seems like we haven't even. I mean, most of them are still on testnet, right? There hasn't really been one that's been yep. like, "Hey, we're in production." And the the interfaces have changed a bunch, and the validator sets have changed. So, mm. I, I think we're we're th this is like 2012 in Bitcoin for for L twos, maybe even mm. 2011. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty awkward to, to interact with these, right? Like you have to, you know, put in like a custom RPC or like all these different things in MetaMask or whatever you're using. It's it's definitely not a delightful user experience. It sounds like for both the topic of privacy and the topic for sort of L2, this is like a moving space. And so in yes. my opinion, it's something to like keep an eye on. And uh, it's definitely opened up some new questions for me and something to explore. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting is, you know, we've talked a lot about trading and keeping track of users who are in trading or like monitoring different users and how there's actually in this crypto world, unlike the normal world, there's this interaction where the analytics influences the market and the market influences the analytics and you get this feedback loop. On the other hand, you have positive feedback loops too, right? So there's governance where, you know, in order to make governance decisions, people need to have really good data to justify numbers that they're going to pick or to justify why certain types of entities should be excluded from rewards. I'd say Uniswap's Dharma airdrop has been very controversial because of that or potential airdrop. But, you know, I think there's also these kind of positive sum games, not just zero sum games like trading, where there's a huge benefit from studying these things. And so I'd be curious to learn what, what are some of your most surprising learnings from kind of some of your research, especially when a lot of it might not be the trading use case. Like there, because, you know, I think there's starting to be a lot of other use cases and it'd be great to yeah. hear like what some surprising things you found are. So governance is definitely an interesting area. We did some uh, work with Aragon where we looked at participation rates, for example, in AGP votes. And, you know, that was an interesting process because we, we could actually see, for example, you know, what, what you might describe as insider voting, uh, where basically you have wallets that are a small degree away from certain specific, like a team multisig or, you know, a token sale contract or things like that. And that was actually something that Aragon like asked us to, to find for them, right? Just because it's a, it's something that the community should know uh, if you have examples of that. And it's not necessarily, it's not like, you know, insider voting sounds a bit harsh, but it's really just people who are, you know, central in the project in some cases. And they're, of course, 
totally allowed to participate in governance as well. Mm. And so we did an interesting project where we kind of reviewed every single AGP vote that's ever taken place on Aragon. And it was kind of interesting to see, for example, what are the different uh, votes that drive more engagement. So like voter engagement uh, in itself is an interesting area. I wouldn't like single out you know, a specific vote or anything like that in the, in the case of Aragon. But it was some, you saw some clear trends that certain votes that related to like other projects, for example, like should you fund another project, those votes had high engagement. And then other votes that were more kind of admin oriented, you know, they were basically like no engagement <laughs> at all. And it was just like a couple of, call it central key players in the ecosystem that voted on them more mm out of chore, if, if, you know, if anything. So I think that whole area is really, really interesting. And as you say, I think it's positive some to understand governance processes better. And I think most people would agree that the kind of governance experience today is not that great. Like there's no. definitely room for improvement uh, on that. There's a lot of voter apathy, even just voting in itself, like the mechanics of it is costly with gas fees and so on. It's been a bit better now with snapshot.page and so on. But like definitely the whole governance area, I think is really, really interesting. And I personally think that you kind of need to have the kind of entity contextual layer on governance, maybe not necessarily knowing who the real world entity is, but having like a persistent view on like who this user or who this like like, a reputation. Yeah, like exactly. Even if it's not like a person. Yeah. And that reputation has to hold value maybe even outside of just this governance thing where it's like if you – because what you wouldn't want is someone to build up reputation in this tiny little – kind of uh, similar to the example I gave before, like where it still only lives in this little bubble. So you have a good reputation there, but there's no stake really. There's nothing to be lost if on one decision they forfeit that reputation. Yes. But they, you know, make off with a ton of money, then maybe for them on that one, in that case, it doesn't matter. So like some link between that inner reputation and the external world you still need, even if it's sort of pseudonymous or not connected to a person. Exactly. And, and again, you know, transparency can be quite useful here as well. Like if you know, you know, the certain positions of some entity with regards to which other assets they hold, that can obviously influence how they vote. And so just being aware of that can be useful. Of course, you know, you can hide away assets in other wallets as well. But that's, yeah, I mean, I, I totally, totally agree with that um, assessment. So, so I think governance is a really interesting area. And like, comp- it's a complex area for where, sure. you know, things like Gauntlet, for example, are going to be extremely important in making governance better. And you had a good um, example of this recently with Unit, right, Tarun? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things especially as I've been doing more research and trying to, you know, make this more, understand how people who are interacting with the system should really think about parameters and how people should write proposals, is that in crypto, the wealth of data is actually a lot better than what you have in the normal world in terms of governance, where, you know, you're trusting some type of lobbyists' data collection and analysis for for better or worse, like if if you've ever interacted with government agencies, they're always trusting some random consultant who went and scraped data for yeah. them and gave them a CSV. And then unfortunately, Excel overflowed because they <laughs> didn't have enough cells kind of, I, I don't know if you guys saw the, the, the Excel bug <laughs> with Britain. 
But basically, Britain missed 1,500 COVID cases because <gasps> they like had too many rows in an Excel oh sheet. Oh, my God. That's and it overflowed Excel. That's wow. like Excel's limit. That's insane, but also uh, very unsurprising <laughs> if you've worked with data in the real world. Like, wow. this stuff happens, right? Which is crazy. Well, it's just funny that it's like sitting in like the entire country's COVID stuff is in their database is an Excel sheet, right? So, like, this is the type wow. of stuff where like crypto and governance is it's way more transparent. Like, yes. why are there three mm-hmm. people who are looking at this Excel sheet that contains the health of the country? But what I mean is like, when you make governance decisions in, in crypto and DeFi in particular, you just have so much more data to use, which is great, unlike the normal world. But you also have to figure out how to distill it to something that is a clean, easy to understand piece. And I think, yeah, that that's where I see a huge amount of value in, in the analytics and for transparency kind of thing. Because I think, you know, we've seen version 1.0 of crypto where people kind of vote randomly or they make random proposals or it's like extremely interested party furthering a certain agenda. But there is, you know, there's going to be the more people that use these systems, the more there'll be things filled out in the middle. And I think personally, I found using Nansen has been really, really useful for because it looks at off-chain entities and on-chain entities and how they interact. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, you know, I think the old school analytics companies like Chainalysis they only focus on that from the perspective of, hey, is this person a terrorist or you know, money laundering mm. or whatever? Uh, but I actually think when it comes to behavior, it's more complex and you really do need to understand smart contract state to, to be able to say something useful about why someone should ma- vote on your proposal. Yeah. Just to, just to kind of add to what you said, I mean, this was kind of the main reason why I started working full-time in, in crypto, that there is this abundance of data, but it's still quite immature in, in the sense of, you know, how you use it for analytics. And so, you know, if, if there's anyone listening who's like a data scientist or, you know, data analyst or data engineer, I mean, I really strongly believe that this is the most exciting industry to work in if you have that skill set, because... There is so much data like at, at your fingertips and there's still tons of work to do on the analytics side. So mm. I can't really imagine any better industry to work in if you, if you are interested in data and analytics. It's just even blockchains themselves are actually really neatly structured. So you have really high data quality. You don't have these kind of Excel issues that Tarun just mentioned. It's just a really great industry to work in if you like analytics. The, the funny thing about that is that, like, you know, most people I know who are in kind of data science, statistics, and, and machine learning, like, they, they still have this aversion to crypto. Like, oh, it's just like scammers. <laughs> and it's like everyone just Ponzi scheming each other. Why would I ever want to work in that? Like, I remember when I left, I got a lot of ostracism from like my friends who are in sort of more like statistics and data science and stuff. They're like, oh, yeah. like why, why would you like leave the clean stuff for this kind of scammy area? And, and I think what we've seen is that, well, first of all, uh, COVID has shown that everything is a scam by looking at the <laughs> stock market. But secondly, you know, I think data being used for bad has finally come to light to a larger swath of the population that like it's there's no free lunch to this kind of like platform based data science and you kind of towing the line between transparency and privacy is probably the future yep but yeah it still has it crypto still has a very bad reputation amongst people it does it does i mean so 
just to draw an analogy, it's, it's maybe not a great analogy, but when I started studying machine learning in like 2007, 2008, I remember talking to people who were in kind of just computer science in general about how, how exciting like AI and machine learning is. You know, back then it wasn't really clear that machine learning was going to have that big of an impact as it has had in the last, you know, decade. And so a lot of people just dismissed it and were like, yeah, machine learning, that sounds fancy, but it's really, really boring to work with in practice. Like, it's not interesting at all. A lot, a lot of people actually told me that. And, you know, you might see the same thing now. Like, people tend to have a certain skepticism towards new technologies. They don't believe in it before they actually see what's, what's possible to do with a new technology. And crypto has, like, twice that challenge because you also have, like, the, the scams and all that stuff in addition. Um, but... You know, I think we already have some amazing examples of what you can do with DeFi. And like, you know, the, one of, some of the first projects I showed to people are Compound and, and Uniswap, which actually solve you know, real-world problems and they're easy to use. They're fully decentralized with regards to governance and so on. So I just hope, you know, I think we're going to get more great examples like that that's over time going to draw people in, even if they're a bit skeptical right now. Cool. I wanted to ask you, so you, like, on the, on the website, there is this AI focus. How do you actually use AI? Because we haven't spoken about that at all so far. Yeah. Like, where is the AI component in all this? Yeah, so I think, you know, AI at this point is kind of a, a buzzword, but the machine learning component is really, you know, that's how I would uh, des- describe it. So uh, when it comes to, for example, scoring the probability of a wallet having a certain label, that's one example of how you'd use machine learning. So, for example, what's the probability that any random wallet belongs to Coinbase? So it's controlled by Coinbase. And then you could think of this in like Bayesian terms or you know probabilistic terms, and you can add evidence that you have from the on-chain data. So, for example, does this wallet have different tokens in the same wallet, or does it just have one type? And does it have, you know, a fixed size in batches of transactions coming into it? What's the gas price that uh, is used on the transactions? Does it have this certain kind of graph features in the transactional network? And all of these become features that you can use in order to make a probabilistic assessment of whether or not it belongs to Coinbase. Mm. So that's how we use it in, in practice. It's not really AI in the sense that we're kind of just, you know, speaking to like a robot or something that and we're asking them about addresses, but it is the machine learning component and machine learning is basically what powers all of AI today. Cool. Uh, what would it take to bring people to the space kind of in the same way you just talked about the transition from AI kind of being like pie in the sky to like every under CS undergrad is trying to do it? What type of things would be needed for that transition? And, you know, personally, I think having really good analytics tools, like someone has to make PyTorch or TensorFlow yeah. for this stuff, right? Yep. And like, that's kind of what we're all doing on, like, in some sense. But like, what are kind of the tools that you think that would kind of move us in that direction to like every, you know, smart undergrad is like, hey, I want to work on this. Yeah, I'd say maybe two things. The first one is I do think that we need a bit of a culture change in crypto in the sense that we tend to be very inward facing and actually not that outward facing. Like basically, it's a full time job in itself to keep track of what happens in DeFi. And that's not, that's a good thing. 
but it also makes it not that easy for newcomers to have to, you know, understand these six layers mm-hmm. before you get to the seventh layer of the product that, that you're using. So I think just generally a mindset shift where you try to actually make it a bit more uh, welcoming and just easier for new people to participate mm-hmm. in the space. I think that that's a good thing. There's a lot of people doing great, great work on that front, but I think we could be even better. And then the second is, you know, since you mentioned AI and machine learning as the analogy, there are some things that actually popular, popularized machine learning heavily. So Kaggle is probably a good example where you had machine learning competitions where a lot of people actually started doing machine learning on Kaggle because you had this incredible forum of people sharing how they built certain machine learning models and how they were able to win competitions. And so having kind of either competitions or more like, you know, hackathons and open forums for people to participate, I think that's that's another area where you can learn from machine learning and AI. And of course, the fact that Kaggle also had like a financial incentive, you could win lots of money was, was really good. They also did great work on the PR side, right? They were able to get some incredible stories posted about some person from some field that was able to make a, a massive breakthrough in another mm-hmm. field just because they know how to do machine learning, right? That's like incredible marketing for machine learning. So I, I don't have the exact solution, but something along the lines of Kaggle for crypto, I think would be really cool. That's really cool. Dark Forest. Yeah, maybe. I'm addicted. (laughs) I think the games are kind of the... Those are actually really good. That's a really good point. Like being able to use X for solving problem and Y is usually important. Crypto has has spent most of its time being like, hey, how do we take X from somewhere else and apply it to crypto? Mm -hmm. But yeah, I guess that hasn't really made any other field kind of improve. Yes, I I think you're right. Gaming is a really exciting area for this. So... Um, another example that I love is Ax- Axie Infinity, which is um, this NFT-based game. And they had these incredible stories of how like, people in the Philippines and a couple of other countries were playing these games. And they're actually making money off of them because there's like you get die rewards from playing the game. And you can actually sell certain like potions that you earn from playing the oh, game. Wow. And you can sell them on Uniswap you know, to the open market, which is really cool. And then in addition now with the Uniswap airdrop that happened, like there were people in, you know, the Philippines and Vietnam, like all over the world who just overnight received like $2,000 in uni tokens, which was just like incredible thing on its own. That's not really, you know, addressing necessarily like that technical crowd, but it is definitely a way to make crypto more mainstream and to get those incredible stories out there on how people can use it and actually benefit from it directly. Cool. So now if anyone wants to learn more about Nansen specifically, what should they do? Go to nansen.ai. You can also follow me on Twitter. A Svanavik is my handle. And uh, one thing is anytime if you're on Twitter, if you see medium Dex trader as a meme, that <laughs> is that is a, one of their labels that became like kind of a huge meme over the last few weeks. So you'll know, if you see that in the screenshot, you'll know that's from Nansen. <laughs> cool. We might, we might have some medium Dex Trader mugs coming out at Ooh. some point. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about analytics, crypto analytics, DeFi analytics, and, and all of the other topics we covered. I feel like from what we talked about, I've already had in my mind like the idea for three new episodes to kind of go a little deeper into some of those directions. So it's been cool. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Really fun being here. 
Thanks for coming on, Alex. Yeah, and Tarun, thank you for co-hosting again. Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening. <laughs>